Welcome to the 427th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, and I'm thrilled to be guest hosting the program this week. You can join me every day this week on COVID Calls, where I'll be speaking with some incredible individuals whose voices need to be heard as we continue to navigate the pandemic landscape, including clinicians, epidemiologists, historians of science and medicine, and public health. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls with me throughout the week. Our live show is set for tomorrow at three o'clock with epidemiologists, Dr. Freya Yebkot and David Stedson. To find the program, go to COVID Calls YouTube TV channel. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and anywhere else you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at COVID calls, myself at Steer Williams, or Scott at US of Disaster. Please help us spread the word about COVID calls and make suggestions for guests or future topics as the pandemic continues to unfold, letting either myself or Scott know of your ideas. As of today, February 23rd, 2022, there have been 5,914,231 reported deaths from COVID-19 worldwide according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The COVID-19 death rate for the U.S. continues to rise as we approach 1 million Americans who have died of COVID-19. And daily deaths in this country still hover between 2,000 and 3,000 people each day. Now, to put that number into perspective in a way that my guests today and, and, and our audience will understand in intuitive ways, in really dramatic ways, the biggest college football stadium in this country is the University of Michigan. Uh, which can hold approximately 107,000 people. From January 1st of this year until today, February 23rd, the entire Michigan football stadium wouldn't hold the number of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. alone. But the numbers are not just numbers. They're individuals lost, their parents and partners, their neighbors, their coworkers, their friends, their children. And as a way to humanize those numbers, I want to tell a real life story of an individual each day this week. And that's something that Scott did to start COVID calls in 2020. And I think it's an important to keep that tradition alive. So my story today comes from journalist Richard Obert of the Arizona Republic from February 19th, 2022. The headline is former Mesa Dobson football coach Alex Jacobson dies from COVID-19 complications. Alex Jacobson, who left a lasting impact on the Mesa Dobson football community in his three years leading the program from 2009 to 11, died on Thursday. His oldest son, Kyle, said he was 60. Jacobson was still teaching at Dobson, often breaking down games with current coach Bill Godsell. Kyle Jacobson, the oldest of Alex's four children, who played football for his father at Jordan High School in Utah in the early 2000s, said his dad contracted COVID-19 around Christmas and had pneumonia. He had gotten better, taking treatments, and was on oxygen at home, but had a relapse four weeks ago. His oxygen levels dropped. He was taken to a hospital and put on a ventilator. He was recovering, Kyle Jacobson said. He was up, back up. He was getting oxygen at home. He got up to go to the bathroom, and his oxygen went back down into the 70s. He was rushed to the hospital. Since his dad's death, Kyle said there has been an outpouring of love from star players to players who hardly played at all for his dad, all grateful for the impact he had on their lives. Kyle said his dad was the picture of health, never getting sick and respecting the virus. He's working out every day, Kyle said. He respected the virus, always wearing a mask, washing his hands. He's helped so many people and done so much good in the community. Godsell called Jacobson an impactful teacher and coach. His life was faith, family, football, Godson said. Loved coaching his grandson's baseball team. He would give me input after games. I will miss talking to him and hearing his stories. Kyle said his dad was good friends with Mississippi State football coach Mike Leach, knowing each other since their high school days in Wyoming. Mike Leach said it was a privilege for people who knew Alex, Kyle said. Every time he would come into a room, he would light it up. He was proud of his two boys and two daughters. He was a super good dude, one of the best. 
Kyle said that former Dobson star and NFL defensive back Toby Wright reached out to let him know how impactful Alex was to the Dobson football community. Kyle said his dad would do anything for anybody, even getting up at two in the morning to help somebody in need. Alex Jacobson, an all-star athlete in football, basketball, and baseball in Wyoming, leaves behind a wife and four children and four grandchildren. A service will be held next Saturday in Mesa and another at a later time in Wyoming, Kyle said. So let me welcome my two guests today. I'm so thrilled for you both to be here. My first guest is Dr. Kathleen Baczynski, who's an assistant professor of public health at Muhlenberg College. Dr. Baczynski's work on public health is wide ranging, but she's a leading expert on brain injuries, sports, injury prevention, youth health, and risk. Her book, No Game for Boys to Play, The History of Youth Football and the Origins of a Public Health Crisis, has been called by one scholar, smart, salient, timely, eminently readable, and socially important. It is an absolutely incredible book. I'm so much uh, better for reading it, and I highly suggest that everyone picks up a copy if you don't have one. My second guest today is Dr. Johanna Mellis, who's an assistant professor of world history at Ursinus College outside of Philadelphia. She was a former D1 swimmer at the College of Charleston, where I currently teach, so that's a cool connection and a former swim coach. She is a historian of Cold War sport who analyzes sporting interactions between Hungary, the International Olympic Committee, and the U.S. She's also, you may know, our listeners will know, co-host of the End of Sport podcast that explores capitalistic sport, labor, and justice for the end of times. And is, she has written for pieces widely publicly for The Guardian, Time, Washington Post and the LA Times. She's written amazing historical pieces for the Journal of Sport History, Contemporary European History, and I'm super excited to read the book that she's working on with the tentative title, Changing the Global Game, Hungarian Athletes and International Sport During the Cold War. Thank you so much for being here today, and I can't wait to jump into our discussion. So as we like to do on COVID calls, why don't we just start by asking you where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. Johanna, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So I'm outside of Philadelphia. I'm in Collegeville, which is a very small town, about 40, 45 minutes outside of Philly. That's kind of getting more into sort of rural country. Um COVID, how it's been here. I mean, my county, Montgomery County, was one of the first ones that had a like really, really experienced a pandemic. There was like a doctor's office that was like unknowingly like spreading the virus early on. So things got locked down here pretty early. Um, it's It hasn't been great here, I think, like everywhere else. I mean, Philly did not have kind of what you saw in like New York City and Seattle and places like that. I mean, thank goodness. Um, I, I, in terms of how we are now, I mean, the, the county is still an un, sort of high alert um, with, with cases. I mean, they're starting to go down, but still like in the red zone. Um, I don't know if this is part of your question, but my school's been thankfully handling COVID really seriously. Um, students have had, I mean, have had to do lots and lots of testing. They were doing, I think, twice a week testing all year last year. We had mandatory vaccinations for students. Um, they had to get the booster before they came back. Uh, masks are required indoors, uh, which makes me feel a lot safer than if I didn't have those measures. Yeah, that's super interesting. We don't have those measures where, where you are an, an alumnus and where I currently uh, teach, many of them, I should say. And, uh, you know, it is really um, eye opening and, and, and frustrating and also a pandemic reality that that we're all differentially experiencing to see just how wide ranging the responses continue to be, not just in universities, but in corporations and in organizations and in local governments and in, 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 in international governments. And I think like that's in part defined um, our our collective pandemic experience is that there isn't a, a singular one. And that's been true of past pandemics as well. Um, but I think it's one that has been sharply in relief during our own and, and frankly is, is about to continue as so many school districts talk about dropping mask mandates for, for, for primary school children, as so many universities that like, like yours that have had mandates in place, I think if they haven't already are gonna start talking about scaling them back 
Um, and those those mixed realities, I think, are, are going to continue to be a feature of the pandemic landscape. Kathleen, tell us where you're calling from. Um, I'm calling from Allentown, Pennsylvania. So I'm actually probably like an hour away, I'm guessing, from Johanna. Um, mm -hmm. so very, very similar uh, pandemic experience and trajectory, I would say. We are now sort of on the downward side of the Omicron peak. So that's a real relief. But I think transmission is still, I think, in the substantial category, according to the CDC. So it's, I'd love to see the numbers keep going down. But it's also good to see that the the highest pressure on the local hospital has started to subside a little bit. Um, and similarly, I'm extremely grateful that I'm working at an institution that has a vaccine mandate for students, faculty, and staff, and where we are continuing to mask indoors in our in our classrooms. And I've got to say, I'm especially grateful to our students because they have taken on so much this past year. And I can certainly say my public health students have been so inspiring in terms of trying to communicate with their peers and, you know, set good, you know, role modeling and prioritizing public health. And they've really done an extraordinary job amid a, a very, very challenging situation. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, you know, while you were speaking, it, it, it makes me think about um, something that I've, I've, I've felt very acutely too in mentoring students um, in a similar way. So I've taught a couple, one of the classes I regularly teach is uh, Intro to Medical Humanities. And, and also a history of medicine and public health class. And I get a, a ton of pre-med students in those classes and you know, pre-health professional students in general and public health students. And they have experienced students interested in public health writ large in medicine at the undergraduate level have experienced this pandemic in wildly different ways than a lot of their peers. Um, I've had so many students and I'm interested um, just as, as a kind of, not off topic because this is all on topic, but um, uh, un, un, I didn't plan on asking this, but but I'll, I'll run with it. Is like I've heard so many students that are public health students that are just like my friends are asking me for advice, and 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 their their parents are asking them for advice, mm -hmm. and they're taking on different kinds of roles already as undergrad students, and they're dealing have been dealing with the pandemic and being in college and all of the stress and anxiety. So I totally see what you're saying and feel that, and have been really I've I've really been heartfelt for my students as well. Yeah, and I would just add, I told my students it's really tough in public health where, you know, it's a crisis for us, but we also have to be more visible. Usually in public health, we like to be in the background, but we're now in a role and being a public health student, you actually know more than 95% of people about public health because most people have never taken a public health class. So people are going to be looking to you for guidance, for recommendations, and it's a scary responsibility, but it's one that, you know, that we share in this field and I really admire the students for sort of embracing that instead of running away from that. It's it's really inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree, and I, I think I need to I need to you know organize a COVID calls uh, talk just session just on on that topic. So today with with the two of you and and given your expertise, I really want to talk about risk and and how scholars think about and talk about and theorize risk but more importantly, how everyday people make decisions about their health predicated on perceptions of risk in modern society. As both of you know, there is a huge literature on this, um, one that, that on this, this uh, program, we certainly uh, don't need to get into, but there are some really important discussions today um, as we continue to navigate the pandemic um, and, and we start to analyze the way in which we have already in the past two years handled the pandemic to think about our public health decisions, both as individuals, but also um, in terms of populations vis-a-vis -vis risk. And what makes it so interesting to talk with both of you is there's a lot of different ways to talk about risk, as you know, in the relationship between risk and health. But I think the one of the best ways to do it, and one that I keep coming back to um, in my own line of thinking about the pandemic, is, is to see and to tackle the intersection between risk in sports and risk in dealing with the pandemic. So um, these are, you, you both have been writing about this for the last two years, so you know how entangled those two things are. But, um, but I hope our discussion today can help a lot of other people who haven't thought of those two things as entangled um, in, in this new way. So Kathleen, I wanna start with you. Can you just um, 
start jump our conversation off a little bit by talking about how public health scholars define risk and risk perception and how it relates to health in general. Yeah, absolutely. This is going to be a like real 101 because this is like way, way, you know, more complicated. But I guess the two basic things I wanted to touch on are individual versus population risk and then thinking about risk as preventable and systematic. So thinking about individual versus population, I think it's important because a lot of us in our just like everyday thinking tend to think of individual risk. Like when you go to the doctor, it's like, what are what's my family history, you know, genetics, you know, health history, personal risk factors, you're really thinking about what's my individual risk for this health outcome. But in public health, we're really thinking about population level risk, like what's the risk to the community. And I think this distinction has been made all the more important by COVID-19. I might think, oh, my, my risk seems relatively small for severe outcome from COVID-19. I'm vaccinated. I'm not in a high risk you know, community myself. But then if I think about community level risk, when community transmission is high, there's still a very high risk to the community as a whole. And it's not so much about whether I as an individual get severely ill, it's about what is the outcome for the community that I live in. And that's that's a really important distinction that we have to think about. And in public health, I think we especially focus on vulnerable populations in the context of COVID-19, that would obviously be um, older people, people who are immunocompromised, thinking about different groups who might be in a high risk occupation for exposure, that we're thinking about their risk on a community level. So that's one piece to think about risk to the population. And then the other piece I think that's really important that also connects to sports is to think about risk, not as like a random accident or you know a lightning strike, but as something systematic and preventable that we can study. And unfortunately, you still hear the language in sports like, oh, it was a freak accident, for example, um, or you know, they just caught the injury bug is a phrase I've heard, you know, that it's just some random bad luck that somebody got injured. And that's kind of the opposite of how we think about risk in public health. We think about risk as something where there's patterns to it. You can study those patterns, you can see that there's something systematic going on, and that if you intervene, you can actually prevent the injury from taking place. So it's not a random accident. It's something you can predict and prevent. And I think those are maybe the most key elements to how we think about risk. That's great. Thank you so much. And, you know, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about as you're, you're explaining that to us is a lot of the, the, the definitional aspects of individual level risk and, and how it relates to health have become fairly normalized in, in the 21st century to a lot of people. So I think about like, it's it's everyday tacit knowledge um, that I think a lot of people know about the relationship between excessive smoking and the risk of, of, of lung carcinoma, right? Or of the individual risk of drunk driving. And and we frame, we, fr- we often frame risk in health and we've, we've maybe to use this term like domesticated the idea that risk is all just about individual level health. And so that's why I love like so much of the scholarship in public health is on population level risk and, and where interventions and prevention can come at the population level. Some of that, of course, I think we do and we just don't know we do. But I think everyday people have more of an individualistic understanding of risk than a population level understanding of risk. And that's not surprising perhaps with what we've seen with COVID-19. Um, I hear discussions, especially in the last, you know, as Omicron has started to fade a bit, discussions from like people who have been very safe in my in my circles, people who are vaxxed and boost and like, they're like, okay, well, I'm going to start doing more normal things now because I've done everything right. And I'm not at a, in a high risk category anymore. And so I can engage in riskier behaviors. And, and that's, of course, only thinking about individual risk and not population level risk. So that distinction, I'm really glad you made that. So thank you. That's that's really important for, for this conversation. So Johanna, I want to bring you in here and talk about um, more specifically risk in sport. So your work on the history of sport during the Cold War and your expansive knowledge of college and professional athletes. And I highly encourage everyone to follow your Twitter and end of sport podcast because you're like honestly a wealth of of knowledge of what's happening in the world today about sport is really incredible. So given your research, what can you tell us about the relationship between risk and sports and some historical examples from your own research that you think are salient for where either risk has been incorporated or ignored in sports? 
Absolutely. And this is a great question. It's a huge one. And and Kathleen, your research speaks to this like with very specific examples. So I welcome you to comment on, you know, after I'm done and kind of fill in with respect to football, especially. So when I teach my like history, world history of sport class, and I'm always sort of thinking through how to reframe things um, for students and kind of how to make connections, I think, as we all are as educators. I think one thing that's become clear to me is sort of the way that sports have been presented to people, to populations and also to individuals, is that it is something that's inherently healthy and that the risks are very low and that the benefits and the health, the health rewards far, far outweigh anything else that comes out of it. And I think if we even go back to like the 1800s, which is when we see the first, when we start to see modern sport emerge and by modern sport, that means, you know, people really white European men came together, sort of sat at a table and said, okay, we're going to come up with like firm codified rules for how to play soccer, football, how to play American football, how to play baseball, all these rules so that people could actually come together and compete against one another and, you know, um, have records and keep scores in a way that was quantifiable. Now, the way that it was presented to people to get people involved in sports, one of the things was to say, you know, by playing sports, it teaches people good values about sportsmanship and fairness and all these things that we still hear repeated today. And the other thing was that this idea that by if we can build healthy men in particular, that we can build healthy and strong nations to fight wars. And that was something that really emerged in the late 1800s when we have high imperialism with Europe, Europe Europeans and, and Americans going all over the world to try to you know, scramble and explore the last parts of the world that quote unquote hadn't been discovered yet. Um, and then, of course, with the world wars in Europe, we see more and more um, both physical educators, but also national leaders saying that if we can get more people involved in sports, men mainly, we can raise good soldiers, we can build a healthy populace, we can do all these things to build up a society. So for population health purposes and sort of a eugenics purpose, that sports can, can help serve these ends. Um, now, when it comes to sort of risks, right, the, again, the risks were very much downplayed. And it was this, uh, this idea that you know, sports and athletes can build up a nation and that the risks are very, the risks are very, very minor, even though very early on we have people dying from sports, right? You have people dying from football so much. And again, Kathleen can fill in that part better than I can. Um, I will say with respect to my focus on Cold War sport, you know, I focus on sport behind the Iron Curtain and in Hungary is the country that I focus on, which is a small country, but actually on the Olympic stage outperformed pretty much every other nation except for the U.S. and the Soviet Union, even though Hungary only had 10 million people. And the gov the communist government very clearly politicized sports um, and used athletes for political propaganda, which Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, the U.S., many countries have been using for decades. So this is not a new thing with the Cold War. But what I will say is the communist state in Hungary did is that they did think through some of the consequences of participating in sports. So when you're talking about examples, so for when athletes retired, because the government wanted to use athletes for political propaganda to say, look at these athletes, they're healthy, they're strong, they have successful careers, and they can be good models for uh, communist citizens, even in their retirement, they still realize that we need to sort of take care of athletes once they get into retirement. And it's not a perfect system. For example, doping did occur. Um, it's not clear to what extent in Hungary it was state controlled like what we see in East Germany and a little bit in the Soviet Union. The, the evidence is really unclear about that. Um, but there still was an attempt to take care of athletes in terms of feeding them better, giving them as, as good health care as they could give, and also taking care of them in retirement, giving them health benefits, making sure they're provided for financially, those sorts of things, which in the U.S. we are still fighting for today. There's so many examples at the college level, at the pro level, at the Olympic level of athletes not being taken care of. And really the last thing that I'll sort of say as a personal example is someone who was a D1 athlete you know, College of Charleston is a sort of a low D1 school competitive wise, at least in swimming. And, you know, I was never like presented with the possible risks of what being a swimmer was. It was always swimming is so beneficial. And like, it's so beneficial that athletes and other sports do it for rehab, right? It's so low impact. 
but it's low impact. But because it was presented as low impact, the yardage, the laps that we did were like really, really intense. The lifting that we did was pretty intense. I have bad back issues. Like my lower back is deteriorating because I was a distance butterflyer and 400 IMer, and those are a lot of this, you know, these kinds of movements. And again, the risks were never presented to me. And it's not as if CFC is going to say, okay, I'm going to cover your healthcare costs. Like they're not doing that. And, and this is swimming. This is not football. It's not basketball. It's not all these other like high impact sports or even running where you're like hitting a hard surface. Um, so, you know, it's all to say, like, even as an athlete, I never thought about it. Um, and I think most athletes don't think about it because they're so trained to think that the health benefits are enormous and that they'll make us a better population. But like, I don't, as an athlete, I was not healthier than the average person because of health risks. So, um, which I think is, is, is sad. There's also something that that in the end of sport podcast, you you and your co-host talk about pretty frequently and, and you write about frequently as well as like there's also a certain like uh, spectacle to sports um, and, and, and seeing athletes in this spectacle. And I think that that that, too, probably has something to do with like ignoring individual level risk when this is clearly like, yes, yeah, as you say, like for individuals benefits, but it's also for for social benefit as well. And I think like uh, athletes in, in, in inherently at collegiate and professional levels understand that as well. Like that's part of the, the matrix there. So Kathleen, I want to, I want to bring you in on this discussion. So you've, you've written really extensively on adoptions of helmets and face masks in sports on hockey and on football, on cycling. Um, in a 2019 article, you published this really fantastic piece in sport history review titled too Rough for Bare Heads, The Adoption of Helmets and Masks in North American Ice Hockey from 1959 to 1979. In, in, that, in that article, you explore this really fascinating debate over masks and helmet mandates in hockey. And I can't help but like really think um, about, and I want to ask you, like, what does it mean to tell that story in 2019? or you know probably write it in 2018 and then it comes out in 2019 and then like this is the story in some ways of the prehistory of mask refusal particularly amongst some groups of Americans that I'm sure you can talk a lot about um, for for debates we saw with COVID so what are what are the parallels here between this story this of really this recent history story of post-World War II America and sports and a refusal to adopt um, helmets and face masks, and then how we got to anti-mask adoption in, in early COVID-19. Because I, I know those things are related. Yeah. And as you said, I was working on this in 2019, never imagining this connection. But at the time when, when I was working on it, I was really fascinated and puzzled by how could you be a hockey goalie and not wear a mask? Like That just seemed completely mad to me. Um, but in fact, there were no masks or helmets really among any of the professional players and not even among the younger leagues either until the 1960s. And a big part of the narrative was that the, the, a mask or a helmet was actually considered to be a sign of weakness. And there was even a saying among hockey players that you're not a real hockey player until you've lost some teeth. Mm. The idea was almost like it's a badge of honor and it was accepted as a risk that you would have, you know, potentially a puck or a stick to the face, that you could have a, a head or facial injury. And what really started to change things, well, a couple of things changed about the sport. The slap shot was introduced, which meant, you know, the, the puck was moving quite a bit faster. The risks got quite a bit more significant. And then a very famous goalie, Jacques Plante, who was the goalie for Montreal, he actually got a puck that broke his nose. And he decided, I'm not going back out there without some kind of mask, some kind of facial protection. And I think the only reason he kind of, quote unquote, got away with it socially is that he was such an amazing goalie and he was on you know, a star team 
that he was able to do it despite being mocked by, you know, his coach, the fans, the people around him. He kept the mask on and then continued to win games. So you start to see other people start to adopt the mask. And at the same time, there started to be a lot more kids playing. So another part of the story with the baby boomers, with all their kinds of factors going on in the 20th century, is you have way more kid hockey players and parents starting to say, I want my kid in the helmet. I want my kid in the mask. So there was advocacy from parents as well. So what we start to see is the mandate for a mask and helmet begin with the youth and amateur players and then gradually make its way up till 1979 when it was required for NHL players. So some things that I think we can learn from this are, first of all, there was actually, there was still some lasting resistance. Like the NHL players weren't wearing visors, for example. They continued to say, okay, fine, you can make me wear a helmet, but I'm not going to wear, you know, the visor to protect my eyes. And I think this comes from this really long history. I guess I would say it's like a, a libertarian strain of thought that, that, both, both celebrate risks and says, well, if you're an adult, you get to choose the risk and we celebrate you for taking these risks and we don't want to impose a limit on the risk that you can take. So this long lasting narrative that part of what it means to be a hockey player, especially a professional hockey player, like something we're celebrating about you, something we're really excited to see about you is that you're taking risks. And so this was such a powerful culture that took decades even in the context of like a puck being shot at your face, literally shot at your face to begin to address. So what do we, you know, think about with um, the application to COVID-19? I think we can think about obviously this, again, sort of conceptualization of the mask as like a sign of cowardice or a sign of weakness and thinking about how do you begin to reframe that narrative um, in the context of hockey, I don't know how many of you watch hockey, but you may have seen goalie masks now. They have like snarling animals on them, like skulls. They get decorated with these really stereotypically masculine, tough seeming images. And I think that was actually necessary to reframe the mask, not as a sign of cowardice, but as a sign of toughness, like a, you're a tough guy when you wear the mask. And similarly, with when it comes to masks and COVID-19, I mean, there's different ways this can happen. Maybe you have a mask with like a cool sports logo and you start using the mask to like celebrate something about your identity or you reframe it around different kinds of, of narratives. Like maybe it's like a protective thing to do to protect, the, you know, a tough thing to do, a, a manly thing to do, a, a fatherly thing to do to protect the people around you. And that's something you're doing by wearing a mask. So Long story short, it's a very long ramble of an answer, but thinking about these like very long histories of narratives around toughness and where equipment fits into them, I think there's some really surprising and fascinating connections between sports and what we see with mask wearing for COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's something that just observationally I've seen and experienced um, quite a few times in the past two years. I, I, I remember distinctly... Um, once this is totally anecdotal and it's personal, but it's uh, it's relevant to this discussion. It was uh, in the summer of 2020, and uh, and I was downtown Charleston uh, with my two kids, and uh, and we all had masks on, and we were walking through campus, and a group of um, you know teenagers probably um, uh, walked by us without masks on and and harassed us. They just stopped and harassed us. And, and they said, what are you afraid of? Why are you wearing a mask? And they, they like literally stopped us and harassed us. Like they wouldn't let up. They just kept going and kept going and used very um, specific gendered language to talk about me and wearing a mask in front of my children. Like I couldn't like to them, me wearing a mask meant that I couldn't protect my children when clearly the decision to wear a mask and have them wear a mask is to protect them. And so I found that like, I've thought a lot about that anecdote. And again, it's just one anecdote from one person, but I've thought a lot about that in the last couple of years and, and tried to think about like, where does that sentiment come from? And I think you're absolutely right when, when you say in your work shows that it's really baked into these really deep cultural ideas, um, not only in the US, but particularly in the US that revolve around gender and masculinity and, and sport. Um, the other part of this, of course, um, Johanna, that I want you to talk about is 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 the money side of all this, and there's there's some real economics to 
questions of risk and sport and and prevention. So in 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 the first year of COVID in October of 2020, you and and also that corresponded with the first fall um, season of college football in the U.S. You wrote this piece um, with Nathan Coleman Lamb and Derek Silva for Time called College Football Feels All Too Normal During the Pandemic. And it's an absolutely, I remember reading it right when it came out and I was like, this is so brilliant and it needs to be said and you're the right people to say it. But I want to get, I want to get your frame now because we're, um, you know, we're, we're not fall 2020, we're early 2022. And in that piece, you argue universities are right now, again, this is fall 2020, are subjecting unpaid athletic workers to precisely the same health risks that are eliciting such outrage every day on network television and social media. The difference with college football, there's nary the commensurate concern. It's such an interesting observation um, then, but I wonder now if we speed up to where we are today in early 2022, where, and, and I think we're at, a, we're at a moment where like last night, I, I went to Michigan State as an undergrad and you know I, I love college basketball and I'd still watch every Michigan State basketball game. And I'm looking around and I'm like, every, pretty much everyone's wearing a mask at, at the Breslin Arena. And then at my own university at the College of Charleston, we have a mask mandate too. And like, I haven't been to a game since COVID because I, I don't think it's safe. But, um, but like pictures that I see every week are like less than 20% of people are wearing masks. And, and I wonder like, what's, what's happened from when you read, read, wrote that article to now two years, almost, you know, a year and a half later, when what I've seen with, with, college and professional sports in the U.S. in particular is so much of a vast difference between how some universities handle games and athletes, some professional sports leagues handle COVID and, and precautions and athletes. Why is there so much divergence in what we're seeing in sport and COVID right now? It seems like I can't look anywhere and find consistency. Yeah, there's no consistency. I mean, really, the only consistent thing was in the early in the early months when sport, sports were canceled. And actually, the the name of the podcast, the end of sport, was when sport had, sports were end were had. There were no games. Like no one could watch anything on TV. And and what we saw from the beginning is that every people were clamoring for it from day one. Or like literally like people weren't like there were no games for a month and people were like, what do I do with myself? This is what I do with my spare time. This is how I connect with people. And, and athletes, too, were clamoring for it. They were saying, you know, we want to play. And they were talking about the mental health issues, which is also interesting. And I'll get to your question in a second. But the mental health is interesting. It shows how much we've trained athletes to um, form their identity around being an athlete. Right. And, and the problem with that, when you take that out of the picture, which is what most athletes face when they retire, I certainly went through that. And I was a very, very dedicated student athlete at College Charleston. Um, I like never missed morning practices and all that stuff. Um, and, and so we've seen that. And really, it's just been like a continuation. And so when we when we wrote that piece, it was like we just felt like people were not talking about how normalized it had become so quickly. And people were just so excited that college football was back. And, you know, we saw for a number of professors who were upset at seeing like the masses of fans and stuff like that. Um, but you, a, a lot of people were just really, really excited about, about having a back and be able to be, being able to watch the games on the weekends, all that stuff. Now, in terms of the divergence, I mean, so much of it depends on, you know, state by state regulations, right? And sort of what a different state's doing. Some of it depends on the different leagues, um, you know, having different requirements. Um, some of them have the same requirements, but the way that they are implementing and enforcing them are totally all over the place. I think that the CFC example, right, where there's a mask mandate, but like they're clearly not enforcing it. Um, you know, at the football arena, I'm sorry, the basketball arena downtown. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that Michigan State is actually enforcing that. Um, and I should say, I'm not like a sports fan. I don't really watch sports. So um, that kind of, you know, influences how I see it. But I just think there's so much divergence. And, and I think to me, the issue is that the risk is not about the athletes or the fans health. The risk is losing money. 
and losing cultural political clout. You know, even Trump got involved and was like, bring back football, you know? So I just think the fear of losing money and the, and the, pre, the, the portrayal of the issue as like, we are going to lose massive amounts of money, which is going to hurt the athletes. So if we're talking about narratives, right, the whole narrative framing is really problematic. And there was a really great piece from Sportico where a couple journalists uh, did a FOIA, um, FOIA at a bunch of universities for how they were spending the CARES dollars. And a lot of schools, some of them spent a lot of their CARES money on testing. And like, okay, I'm great that the athletes are being tested. Like, that's great. But also, like, couldn't that money have been used elsewhere? to test maybe the rest of the student population if they're not being tested. So for example, like a D3 school, for example, like D3 schools are not allowed to provide athletes with different kind of support and accommodations than the rest of the student populace. So on my campus, everyone gets tested, right? So it's not just the athletes, whereas a lot of schools, they're really prioritizing the athletes. Um, so I just think the divergence is just it varies state by state. And I think big public schools that get a lot of funding from the state government, right? It depends on the state politics. And is that state government potentially going to pull funding if they don't um, have fewer kind of COVID mitigation um, things going on there? Um, so, yeah, so I think that explains a lot of the variance. And then, you know, I, I mean, I, I feel for the athletes because they are not being paid to play. I mean, they're maybe getting a little bit of money off of NIL, but that requires essentially gig work on the side. You know, the universities are not going to pay for any kind of long-term, long COVID impacts if they get it. Meanwhile, they have fans that are screaming at them that might be throwing bottles at them if they don't play the game the way that they want them to, right? So there are just so many different layers going on there. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think, you know, there's there's real differences between, you know, college athletics in this discussion and, and professional athletics, right? And and that's, you know, a, a, in some ways a very different discussion. But if you think about how COVID has been managed and, and, and spectators in particular have been managed across university and professional sports in different types of sports, um, I think, I think there's the lack of uniformity shouldn't surprise us, but I think it is telling nonetheless of how we're seeing it play out. Kathleen, what do you what do you make of all of this divergence in American sport right now? Where have you been paying attention? Great question. Well, I guess one thing I would say is like it's reflective of the broader public health response in the US. We have such a patchwork generally, it's very state by state. There's not actually that much. I mean, there's a little bit of federal authority in public health policy making, but most of it is state and local. Um, and I would say thinking back specifically to your example of why do we see, you know, great mask and, you know, compliance and, and some schools and then, you know, the rules on the book, but not really being enforced in others. I guess one lesson, at least I was learning from reading up on the history of masks and helmets and hockey is I think you really need both top down and bottom up to make effective change. And with the example of hockey, you needed the sort of bottom up players like Jacques Plante to decide I'm wearing a mask to have parents advocate for that for their kids. You needed some kind of grassroots buy-in and demand for it. And then you also needed the, the leagues to say, okay, we're going to require everybody to wear a mask because as long as only one or two people were doing it, they would be like the outliers and that wouldn't be enough to spur the broader change. So what I think we're seeing now with mask wearing in the United States is that some places there is much more community buy-in and there's much more of a sense of we're all doing this to protect kids under five who can't be vaccinated yet or older family members or you know compromised people all the all the other people who might be at risk and there's there's more sort of buy-in to mask wearing as something to do to protect the community and then in other parts of the united states there's much less buy-in to that idea and i think without the the community support for the idea and without the sort of community willingness to help enforce and abide by a policy, even if a policy is you know, technically on the books, that's not going to be enough to make it actually happen on the ground or on the court or on the ice rink or whatever the case may be. Yeah, too. And I'm reminded to your, as well to, um, you know, to, to you know, the last hundred years of the history of public health in, in the U.S. and how so many public health changes and initiatives needed that too. So not just about sport and not just about, you know, the health of, of either athletes or people attending sporting events, but just like curbing the major infectious diseases, starting major public health campaigns. Um, they required 
yes, some big infrastructure level changes, they required new laws, new mandates, but they also required on the ground grassroots level change and people to buy into it. And I think that's where in this discussion of, of mitigating risk in sports and how it maps onto COVID-19 is another way that like, this is, this is, this is just literally another example in the history of public health that we can point to. And I think a, a lot of people, a lot of even scholars don't frame sport in that way. So, so it's, this is really an illuminating discussion. Um, and I, and I'm, you know, the other thing I'm curious to get both of your observations on is why was there such a big rush in 2020 to get fans back into sporting events? Like, is there no sport without fans? And, and like, that seems like a pretty important public health conversation because Johanna, you're right that like, in my university, I know, I know because we weren't testing students at a mandatory level, the general student population, but we were testing our student athletes very, very carefully and routinely. And um, we were having student athletes that were being very closely monitored. And, and then we were letting thousands of people into sporting events who could do whatever they want, who had, you know, what Kathleen was talking about is this like strain of American libertarianism of I'm going to just protect my own body and make my own choices. I'm not going to think about population level risk. And, and what's hard about that, I think, and this goes back to the, the original point that Kathleen made, is in some ways, I think that the inherent public health problem here is that it's somehow easier for everyday people and local authorities to see individual level risk outcomes when they when they go south some an individual gets sick and it might be because of their behavior it's much more difficult at a population level to show chains of infection so that someone can come to a basketball game in TD Arena in downtown Charleston and be masked and someone next to them is not masked and they take the mask off for one second or they don't even have to do that with omicron and, and get COVID and then they get sick 10 days later and then they die three months later from complications. There's, that's a lot harder to see at a population level as it is an, as an individual level. So I'm just curious about your, both of your observations about where fans figure into these debates about risk, because it seems to me that like they haven't figured in much at all. We've, we've talked, we focused at if anything about COVID in sport in this country, on athletes. Um, and as Johanna said, like there's problems with that as well, but I haven't seen hardly any discussion about fans of the thousands of people who attend these things. Johanna, you want to start? And then Kathleen, I know that's a really big, long question. But. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I like to, to echo your point about the individualization, the whole like neoliberal approach, right. To all of this, that it's everyone's individual fault for how they look, how they behaved, all of these things. And therefore they should be, uh, they should face the consequences. I mean, when it comes to fans, I mean, there was a lot of people sort of saying, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a hard, I'm working hard in my life and I'm suffering from COVID and other areas of my life. And therefore I deserve as a fan, I deserve to see these athletes play, um, which I take issue with. Like, yes, people struggle. Um, I don't think exploiting athletes and making them, putting them in harm's way, I don't think anyone deserves that kind of entertainment. I think they deserve other things. I think they deserve better pay. They deserve better health care. They deserve to have more vacation so they can enjoy themselves, right, and sort of do other things to fulfill themselves and to maybe deal with maybe health issues they have in their lives or whatever. So sports is sort of used and, and that frame is sort of like a stopgap for these other measures that we as a society don't give them. Um, and then there's also just, you know, athletes, we, we dehumanize athletes. That's the other issue, right? That athletes are viewed as like pawns and that, you know, whether it's like sports betting and gambling, whether it's creating brackets or whatever, the fact that people claim that they like own a person is really gross. And it also replicates since a lot of these sports are, are predominantly filled with black and brown men. That's the other issue is that replicates like a plantation system is what a lot of scholars argue and that we talk about at the end of sport. And that it's a lot of people that feel really entitled 
for whether an athlete should play or not, which is which is really gross. So th there's not that much pushback, although athletes I could kind of go back to Kathleen's thing. Right. Athletes are starting to speak out about this more and more. We saw this a lot last summer with Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, a lot of athletes thankfully speaking up for themselves. So I think they're like, I think there's kind of groundswell support. I think gymnastics is a really interesting example because of the histories of sexual abuse. I think gymnasts actually feel more kind of empowerment. And I think that the gymnastics fandom, we were just talking about this on an episode last week. I think the gymnastics fandom, because they are so horrified by what happened to these athletes that they loved and they really cared about they are really supportive of their athletes and they speak up for their athletes health. They're calling out the racism that's, that's open, that's been made apparent at UCLA gymnastics. So I think again, there's sort of groundswell. I think there are room, there's room for it. It's just whether people are willing to go there and then, you know, athletes just get further dehumanized and then, you know, they're further surveilled through all the testing that's forced on them as opposed to fans don't necessarily have to do that. Um, so it just ends up with just have this like really unfortunate situation where sort of fans are kind of allowed to literally do what they want and to themselves, to other fans and to athletes. Yeah. I mean, that, that exploitive model is one that, you know, isn't, isn't new with, with the history of sport in America either. Right. Kathleen observations on this question. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll mostly end up echoing what Johanna said, but I think the, what it really fundamentally comes down to is, trying, I think wrongly, trying to see sport as like some something separate from the rest of society, which it's not. And I think of that both kind of culturally and from a public health point of view, I think culturally, just to, to echo what Johanna was saying, um, I mean, we certainly see this in terms of racism, the, the sort of nastiest strain of that is like the just shut up and play as if athletes, you know, lives are somehow completely separate with sports and what, what else is happening in terms of what they're experiencing in their lives. And I think we can see that kind of just shut up and play mentality applied to COVID-19 as well, where unfortunately there's some this idea that like sports is separate from COVID-19's effects on the rest of society. And then from a public health point of view, I would also say going back to the individual versus population level risk, that so much of the focus has been on like athletes' individual health without seeing them as part of communities where when we think about sports and public health, it's, I mean, athlete health is hugely important, but they're also interacting with trainers, with the staff who work at the stadium, with their coaches, with fans, they're going back home to families, they're living in dorms with roommates. Like you realize they're part of, of a really um, big set of communities. So especially when it comes to infectious disease, any risk that's generated within a sport is not going to stay on the field. It's going to affect the broader community. Um, as you pointed out, especially when we have high levels of transmission and a weakened public health system, we're not able to effectively contact trace to be able to go back and say this specific transmission happened, you know, in the stadium or when two people went to the bathroom at halftime or whatever, we don't have the capacity to do that. So I don't think we have a mechanism of accountability. So with cultural entitlement, a lack of accountability and strong economic incentives to have fans return, I think we saw all of that play out in ways that were very harmful, but also very hard to quantify because we don't have the contact tracing to be able to do it. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, the other thing I'm thinking about here is like, one is how do we, how do we like as as both of you are um, both scholars and, and activists? So activist scholars, like how do we how do we get more information out there about about thinking more population centered? I mean, this is a question that is an unfair one because I don't think anybody knows how to do this. Because if we did, we would be doing it already. And I think so many of us are trying to do it, and it's it's an uphill battle right now. Um, but 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 thinking about risk and health at a population level seems to be the only effective approach here, not just for COVID, but for head injuries in sports, for a whole range of chronic illnesses in our society. I mean, I think like, in other words, I guess what I'm saying is like, one, like maybe we could have done things better before COVID because so many of us, I think intuitively knew what the playbook was going to be when the next pandemic arrived and, and 
we could have done more. And, and I think about that a lot and, and think about what I could have done more in my own community to talk about preventative public health and the kind of issues that might have helped everyday people to, to better navigate the pandemic. But then I also think about like, we're living in this world right now in February of, of year three of COVID where every major media outlet is saying that COVID is endemic and COVID is nearing over or it is over in spite of what we all know um, here of the reality of the daily death counts, which are not going away. They've gone down some, but going from 6,000 deaths today to 3,000 deaths today is still 3,000 deaths a day. And, and before, and in 2019, I think there would have been massive outcry against that. And somehow now that number, um, which again, is just a number. It's, 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 it's real people that are, that are dying every day is, 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 is massive. And, and it's hard to process too, for, for people like us who study this, it's really hard to process. But I wonder what you both, as a final question, think that we can do going forward, because it seems clear from all of the epidemiologists that I read and follow every single day that, that COVID is not going away. Um, we are going to expect changes and future strains, and we will be dealing with this virus for for all the rest of our lives likely. Um, and it will, the pandemic will just change. It will change. And, and, and I think so will too, all of these other health problems that we can view in the same lens via risk and in particular population level risk. So I wonder um, as a kind of final question, Johanna, like what, what do we do next? Like, how do we how do we try to use the momentum of the pandemic? Because I think there is there is momentum. People are more willing to talk about case tracing and they're more willing to talk about protectiveness and pre prevention. They might not agree, but 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 those are words that used to just be public health scholar words that are now everyday lexicon. So there is maybe an opportunity here. I don't I don't see any collective action yet, but but what might that look like? This is such a tough question. Um, and not being an expert in public health, um, my answer won't speak to that. I'm guessing Kathleen will. I mean, I've gone back and forth on this a lot. Um, and part of it has been like, you know, do more public scholarship, um, you know, I think as we're all trying to do. But as Kathleen, I know you know about this and I've, I've talked about it a lot on Twitter, like there's a lot of backlash that can be had for that, right? That's a risk also. And I've gone through a fair bit of that, nowhere near as much as other people have. Um, so not everyone feels like they can do that. And that's fine. I totally support people making decisions that are best for them. Uh, what do we do moving forward? Um, I'm on it. I mean, I, I, I guess one kind of promising thing I've seen out of this, again, related to sports, but other things is that people are opening up and talking about things a lot more. I mean, I struggle with that because you know, as historians, you know, we really focus on like stories and storytelling and that people are receptive to storytelling. And I do think that's true. But like, should people have to like trot out their trauma in order to convince people? I'm really mixed on that. I mean, I am open about things I've been through. People on Twitter know this about me, um, but a lot of people are not. And should that be expected of people that have already been harmed? I don't know. So I don't know how like effective that is or if it's just kind of like, quote unquote, trauma porn or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about the sort of like labor action that's been going on and labor action in terms of like workers from, from a lot of working class positions, but also, you know, working at places like Starbucks, which isn't quite the same as, you know, working at like Amazon, but it's still sort of in the same realm of workers sort of saying like, we need to be paid more. We need better benefits. And even though that doesn't necessarily speak to the COVID thing, I'm hopeful that maybe people will kind of advocate for themselves more and realize that like we all deserve these things that really should be like a basic, right? We all deserve protections that include COVID protections so that we can, people can stay home in quarantine for 10 days rather than five, right? To really, and, and also for, I don't know, maybe workers should be taking tests when they come into the workplace to keep everybody safe, right? This whole, we need to kind of go back to this kind of collective mentality that seemed to be more in vogue after World War II because people wanted to avoid another world war. They wanted to avoid the Holocaust. I mean, they didn't care what was going on with the um, wars and decolonizing nations. That's another issue, uh, right? But there was some kind of attempt to kind of take care of people to some extent to avoid sort of fascism or communism. 
Um, so I guess that that's what's kind of bringing me hope is that people are advocating for themselves more and kind of grouping together to advocate for themselves as a group. So I'm hoping that there'll be some connection there with some kind of more uh, public health measures. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think, you know, honestly, like the work that you're doing with the podcast is is the good fight and it's bringing more awareness and it's 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 bringing more human interest stories and it's doing it's doing that work. So just, you know, as, as long as you can keep mustering it, do that work, because that work is really important. And, and I think like you're right, like in terms of and this is, I guess, where I was getting at this is like, you know, in even in terms of if we just focus on our, what our conversation has been today on on sport and risk, that I think there's so much to be done just in that one area that questions that have risen during the pandemic can maybe help us to build some momentum for for more discussions of mental health in sports or more discussions about pay in sports, more discussion about, you know, using and abusing people's real bodies and objectifying them. Um, so these are these are real public health problems. And I think like yeah. both of you frame them as public health problems in your research, not as individual level problems. So um, yeah. I'm so happy to give both of you that platform. Can I just say one more thing? Just I'm sorry, Kathleen, I'll let you in a second. The other thing is that people are asking like the NCAA and the U.S. Olympic Committee, right, to kind of like they're asking these organizations to do more for them. And I think these organizations don't want to do these things. The NCAA in 2020 famously claim it doesn't have a legal duty to protect athletes from sexual abuse. Right. So it's about COVID. It's about all these other things. And so I think I'm hoping people will push again for those kind of protections within sport, too. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for adding that. Kathleen? Oh, gosh. Well, lots of thoughts. I'll try to condense them. First, I would very much echo Johanna's point that we do have to have stories, that numbers alone are not usually enough to compel people. And I do share the, you know, the concern about you don't want people to feel obliged to trot out very personal harms. But I've often found that when it comes to health, people are often eager to share their story and to take the example of brain injury and CTE. I think a big part of why we're having this conversation today is thanks to retired athletes and their families who I'm so deeply grateful to them, wanted to share their story, want to protect other people from suffering what they're going through, use their platforms to, to share what they were going through and for people to have household names sort of stand in front of them and say, you know, I experienced these terrible symptoms from brain injury and I don't want my grandkids to go through that. That's an unbelievably powerful thing that I think has shaped the public conversation about brain injury just as much, if not more, than brain injury imaging studies or numbers of concussions per year. And I would definitely say we've actually made progress. Like just the fact that we're no longer saying, oh, he just got his bell rung or she's just seeing stars to even recognize those symptoms as potential symptoms of a brain injury is enormous cultural progress that's happened in the last 15 to 20 years. So I actually take some real hope from that. I would definitely say in public health, we're trained, we have to be comfortable with things taking a long time. Um, public health change usually happens slowly. Um, to take the classic example of smoking, we've known since the 1960s how risky smoking is for health, but it took decades of education, of taxes, of changing policies of where you could smoke, like enormous change on many fronts to get the rates of smoking down. Um, and then the, the last thing I would love to see us do more is to actually tell success stories, because in public health, we're really good at talking about when things go wrong, and that's really important. But we also need to talk about what we actually accomplished. And as awful as it is to think we are nearing 1 million deaths. That's an unimaginable number. I can personally guarantee we could be at 2 million or more, if not for everything that people have been doing over the last two years. And I told my students, I think he's on my mind because he turned 97 this month. My grandfather turned 97. And I told them part of why he turned 97 is thanks to you, because you wore your masks, because you got vaccinated. There's no guarantee that he could live from 95 to 97 in a pandemic. That's because there's a community around him that helped protect him. And I want stories like that to be told too, because I think they're really motivating and to put faces on these are the people we protected. These are the people that got to meet their great grandkids, that got to do all these amazing things for the last couple of years. I think we, if we do a better job of that, it's not gonna turn things overnight, 
but I think it's a, a part of how we tell the kinds of stories that can help motivate people to try to protect each other. Yeah, I love that point at the end too. Um, a friend and colleague, Jim Downs, who's an expert um, on, on race and medicine, I had him on the podcast. And one of the things that he said last year was, yes, we talk a lot about um, the number of people who have died of COVID-19 and, and we rightly should do that, as you say. But he said, we don't talk about the people who we saved and the people um, who, who, are, who are doing the right thing. And I think that's such an, it's such an important reflective point um, for the narrative and, and for, for anyone out there. And, and I'm sure we all know a lot of people who feel fatigued and frustrated for keep, keeping on you know, making individual choices that are predicated on both individual and population level risk. It, it does make a difference and it's, it's hard to see that difference too. So thank you both so much for this wide ranging, amazing conversation, Dr. Johanna Mellis and Dr. Kathleen Baczynski. You can catch me tomorrow on COVID calls at four o'clock when I will be speaking to a couple of super amazing epidemiologists. Thanks everyone.